The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello again, law folk. It's Kevin here. My guest today is Miriam Gonzalez Durantes, or to use her official title, Lady Clegg, a modern day Renaissance woman, and as we'll hear, a firm believer in freedom, free movement, and the rule of law. When we met, Miriam was head of Deckert's international trade team, advising clients across the world on Brexit damage limitation and an impending global trade war. And when she's not cooking up Spanish treats at home with the family, she's developing her own international initiatives, inspiring women and inspiring girls. This may be keeping her busy for now, but she doesn't rule out a future political career. And with news of Nick Clegg heading to Silicon Valley and his family reported to be following, the time might not be now, but whatever the future holds for Miriam, only a fool would try to put her in just one box. The Hearing. Miriam, thank you for joining us. Uh, lovely to see you. Thank you. And, uh, I, thank you. And the, the first question I have really is, um, how do you think of yourself? Uh, how do you describe yourself? Uh, because you seem to have so many labels. Um, <laughs> a, a lawyer, a mother, obviously, um, author, cook, wife, a professional <laughs> European, perhaps. I'm not sure where to start. Well, I define myself as somebody who has been always trying to fight precisely against labels. And I think that labels affect women in in particular. Somehow people try to see us in different boxes. And during my whole life, um, for me, the biggest thing about me is my freedom. I I really, really value my freedom. If there is something that I would Mm. really go to battle for is to, to maintain that freedom to do whatever I decide to do, I'm very happy to take up responsibility for whatever mistakes I make, but I don't like anybody kind of putting limits um, to yeah. me. And and one of the the size of that freedom is the the freedom to go through different boxes uh, without yes. wanting to fit into any of them. I think I think a lot of people will uh, agree with that. And um, you are obviously we can hear um, European, uh, yeah. Spanish, and are you insulting my accent? I, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm from Yorkshire. Don't I can't really insult understand. any accents. Um, and, uh, but but uh, your your uh, practice has brought you to the UK, yeah. but also your family life. And yeah. um, how how did you end? Up here, um, what, what, tell us about the route that, that took took you on. Well, here it was really for family reasons. I, I studied in in Spain. I did the the university degree, the law degree um, in Spain. I, I qualified there, and then I went to uh, Bruges to study mm. to the European studies. I did one year of uh, politics, and then a second year on the legal side of the of the internal market. That is where I met my my husband, Nick Clegg. And uh, then I became, through a couple of um, iterations, I ended up as a civil servant, a negotiator, a trade Mm. negotiator for the uh, European Union before the World Trade uh, Organization. And I had a career there going from trade to foreign affairs. Mm. I became a Middle East advisor. Mm. I started on the trade side and moved gradually to the political side. My husband was at the time member of the European Parliament, mm. like all politicians, they all like the national politics. They don't really not like the the international or European mm. uh, politics so much. <laughs> and um, he decided to stand here for um, election at Westminster. We had two uh, very small kids, yeah. and um, and we decided that commuting between two countries really wasn't going to do. I looked at London and yeah. I saw that. There were lots of really interesting possibilities. And and I came here and I initially did one year at the Foreign Office on on secondment during the UK presidency of the council, which was an interesting thing to 
to see, but it wasn't really my place. And I wasn't thinking at all about becoming a lawyer in private practice. But somebody uh, came with an offer to set up a trade practice. And, and I thought, well, how interesting. Are yeah. they ready to invest in this? And I, I literally remember very few people were doing trade. It was mostly corporate lawyers who started doing bits and pieces of sanctions. Yeah. And I remember sitting there with a pen and paper thinking, you know, trade. Trade goes from anti-dumping to bilateral trade agreements to European trade. Mm. And, you know, they, they just bought it. And they were really very brave to invest in it. It worked very well because we caught all the waves of sanctions Mm. on uh, Iran and then Mm. Libya that obviously had a big impact um, here in the Mm. city. And from there I moved here. So uh, it has been through through opportunity rather than design, really. And it was, was, uh, it was very close thing to politics, obviously. Was yeah. was that ever an option for you? Anything you considered? And politics? Yeah. Well, I'm a Spaniard living in the UK, <laughs> so it's not really like if I can stand here for politics. But but but, um, yeah, but even even back home, like you've, you've got the freedom now to move around, um, still at the, the time of recording, I at least. I still have freedom of movement. <laughs> um, so is that, who, is knows, that, who knows? Who knows? One never knows. Okay. You can never plan. Uh, so it's not Nick's turn to, uh, to, to follow you. Um, over that. Well, I think that there are lots of different ways in which um, you can show an interest in politics and and, um, and contribute to politics. If you probably had asked me that question a few years ago, I would have told you that we had enough, you know, I'm the daughter of a politician, the wife of a politician. Mm-hmm. I have had enough of politics in my life. For me, lots of things change um, around 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brexit vote, the, the Trump election, mm. this this whole wave of populism that is putting into question things that I consider basic. Mm. That I thought nobody was ever going to question fundamental freedoms, yeah. for example, or, or some of the gender freedoms. Mm. And now I see some mm. <laughs> bits and pieces of society putting them into question. So, so yes, I feel mm. much more... Um, uh, wanting to be involved in in politics, mm. whether that is the usual question that I get about would you go back to your country to stand there? Well, who knows? Because yeah. you know my life is is really complex, but I definitely uh, took a very conscious decision to speak out more, to to intervene, to to risk it mm. uh, more. And I hope you know I tell everybody I meet, especially young people, you need to do that too. Mm. And do you think that the law? Um, is as strong as it always has been, or as strong as it was, to hold politicians accountable, to hold, to hold law uh, effectively accountable, um, because politics is sometimes seemingly getting in the way, uh, rather than actually helping things. Uh, do you think you can do more as a lawyer than you can maybe through politics? I I think that so far so good in terms of the value of the law and, and the rule of law mm. in particular. And, you know, we, we speak about that from a privileged position because mm. that is one of the trademarks of the UK. Why, why so many business people come here? And it is not mm. because we have the cleverest people or whatever, which there is a bit of that, no? that you get a pool of talent. Yeah. But fundamentally, it is because of the rule of law and because you can trust uh, the system. I don't think that we have seen an erosion of that yet, but you can see the beginnings, whether it is here, whether it is in the US, whether it's in my own country, of people suddenly questioning the value of some rules of saying, you know, 
mm. whatever it is, on opposing the penalty, for mm. example, that we have uh, seen relatively recently. You know, so some of those issues that some years ago we would not see and we would not even think that it was possible. And suddenly we start seeing question marks. So, mm. so my own view of that is that it's not just good enough that it is working right now. <laughs> we need to make it working towards the future. And I suspect that we are not going to see it working towards the future unless we really defend it. Mm. And do you think, we've got to talk about Brexit, obviously, um, but do you think Brexit will give particularly the UK the opportunity to go back and look at those values and to reconsider sort of the, the, the value of the rule of law, of, of um, rights, of people's rights? Or do you think that they will fall into secondary position compared with perhaps trade? I think what we are seeing so far is that Brexit becomes a, an all-involved um, target for absolutely anything that is happening mm. in the country. So mm. while this government should be dealing with uh, the housing crisis, with the um, uh, social care mm. crisis, with how do we take care of the increasingly um, elderly uh, population, yeah. we are dealing with not necessarily creating something new or reducing new opportunities, mm. but but to handle the risk and the damage mm. <laughs> that that decision uh, created. So I do not see Brexit as an opportunity to um, uh, to redefine the values and improve them. I think that the UK is based on really good values mm. and that's what the population really needs is how to continue expressing those values in a positive way, in an open way. For me, the UK is all about diversity and I hope that the diversity is not lost. And do you think those values are aligned with European values? I would assume that they are. We've been part of the European community for such a long time. How do you think that that may change in the next year, two years, ten years or more? I think that definitely those values are European values. The European construction, frankly, is very much a UK construction. The single market, um, mm. uh, the fundamental uh, rights. No, that all has come with a lot of... Um, uh, British involvement, the, the, the trade openness, mm. uh, for example. I do not really see so much that we would lose um, all that in the EU because in a way the UK has been so successful about expanding those values yeah. that now there are many other countries that yes. have taken them as their own. It is true, though, that there is something else going on in the world and in the EU, which is about a pushback mm. on the populist side, mm. extreme right, uh, coming very much from the Easter border, mm. uh, which probably comes from uh, an unfinished enlargement process. I, I was a defender of the of the enlargement, I still think that with all the problems looking backwards is the very best decision that mm. the EU ever took probably in all its years mm. of, of existence. But it is true that that has come with a cost yeah. and, and it, is a big, it is a big worry. So the EU will be hoping to keep all those values that you have mentioned, but also fighting something very worrying that is coming from the East. Mm. And how do you, how has your work changed? Has it changed at all? Um, sanctions are being imposed left, right and centre at the moment, it seems. Uh, threats are being thrown around. Uh, what's, what's the feeling with your clients, which I presume are mostly commercial clients, um, sure. um, rather than governmental clients at this stage, but 
uh, are they are they concerned? Do they see it as opportunity? And what pressures may be being put on you to uh, to, to react to them? I think they're pretty much. Um, I was going to say ninety five percent is probably between ninety five and one hundred percent of um, the companies I meet. Uh, they do not see Brexit as an opportunity. They they really approach us to try to damage to limit the damage. Um, of Brexit from a legal or, or regulatory uh, point of view. My practice obviously changes a lot with trade um, uh, from year to year. We went through the whole period of sanctions, then mm. we thought that sanctions were going to uh, disappear. Um, then came Brexit. Um, we were really well positioned because we were doing European uh, trades well before this was um, fashionable and there are very few people in the country who have actually yeah. been there in the negotiating room, yeah. which makes a, a huge difference in terms of the pragmatic nature of the mm. of the advice. But then came uh, sanctions again, and even at, at a wider level, I'm, for example, thinking a lot, one of my worries is what, what happens now if we go through this uh, artificial intelligence revolution and uh, mm. digitalization are we still going to see so many border controls or are mm. we going to see the controls mostly on the technology? So mm. obviously on the export control side, the, the technology side of it becomes much more important. So, so yes, we go with the, mm. with the times. What we never predicted is that trade was going to become so fashionable. And it's a, it's a nice thing, <laughs> a nice problem to have. And now you're, now you're leading a team um, across, the, across the world. How is that? Because you can't be everywhere in one go and you I'm, I'm guessing, um, this is not a slur, uh, that you don't know everything uh, across the world as well. Uh, so how, how is that working as a team? Well, we have a multi-jurisdictional uh, team mostly based in the US and, and here, and mm. it works like any other international team. You just try to get the best possible talents and, mm. and then to make the, the talent to cooperate. Né? But then in terms of some of the smaller uh, jurisdictions, we tend to work with the smaller firms that are really specialized yeah. on, on trade. I think it is very, very difficult to, some claim they have it, I don't think that they really do. Um, it's very, very difficult for firms to mm. have a truly international trade team in whatever, five or six different locations, mm. because in some of the jurisdictions which are not the EU and the US, there does not tend to be enough specialized yeah. <laughs> need for specialized advice on on trade. So um, we tend to go to smaller firms to get the very best in those markets. Yeah, good. And 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 your your own career path, as we heard at the beginning, has taken a few turns uh, along the way. And and I'm guessing you don't really have anyone that you would see as a an, an obvious role model to have, to have been following, but who's inspired you uh, along, along the way, both legally and sort of personally? Well, lots of lots of people, and um, I lead a campaign called Inspiring Girls, which is all about getting female role models together with with girls. And um, if you really ask me, who inspires you? I have never met so many inspiring people than whenever I I launched the campaign and mm. I said, okay, come on, you know, all these women who are not in glossy magazines and in mm. TV news, but are, are really, really inspiring. Why don't you just come all together and we just go to schools back to talk to the girls and to tell them what we have done with our lives. And the amount of extraordinary women 
I have met and actually some fantastic men who have come in the process saying, well, actually, this is for us as well. And we care about this. And I, it almost moves me every time that, that I'm with them and I see how, you know, the kind of things that they have done with their lives and that they, they go unnoticed. So in terms of inspiration, that is probably the, the biggest lesson that I have had in the last few years. So when did that start up, uh, Inspiring Women, and, and how did it come about? Well, that was 2013, okay, and wow. um, I was in the 2010 election mm. uh, that I was already working um, as a lawyer, and um, and I was asked in, a, in an interview, um, would you give up your job basically and, mm. and follow your husband through the through the campaign? Mm. And um, and and it seems awkward now because things have changed a lot. But yeah. at that point, the wives of the leaders every morning would uh, issue a press release saying what they were wearing and <laughs> where they were going. And I said something that I thought it was obvious, which is that, listen, I will try to help, but obviously I cannot give up my job and mm. simply disappear for a month and, and a half. And, and from that moment, since you were asking me about labels earlier, the, yeah. the professional woman label came <laughs> on okay. to me. And in any single interview, I was asked all the time, don't you think that there are not enough female role models mm -hmm. for girls? And I said, this is absurd, because on my own, I know thousands of really impressive women mm -hmm. who are not very well-known women, but they are fantastic role models for, for girls. So I decided to put together the campaign. I, I sent emails to 10 really well-known women, some I knew, some I didn't. Mm. And before I sent all the emails, um, eight of them had already accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and we launched it, just learning as, as we went through it. And it was a fantastic success. Mm. Here in the UK, um, there are 26,000 women going back to schools wow. all throughout the country and they're inspiring women. Then I internationalize it as inspiring girls. We are now in seven countries, four more to come Gosh. in the next few months. We are about to launch um, an online initiative yeah. so that every single girl, regardless of background or geography, they can have access to female role models. Wow. And it's, it's fantastic, really. It's one of those simple things that takes off precisely because it is simple. Yeah, but you say it's a simple thing, but there's a, a lot of administration behind it as well. How are you finding the time to, there's to, to manage There's not a lot of administration, that? really. And I think that some of these initiatives, if um, I didn't come from the charity mm. world, I, I came from the business world. Mm. And I think that you can make it as complex or as simple as, as you wish. Yeah. Ours is a very decentralized initiative. Mm. It is run from each country, so in um, Peru or in Ghana, is in Ghana is Ghana women talking to Ghana girls, mm. and in Peru, Peruvian women <laughs> talking yes. to Peruvian girls, so there is no patronizing element. Yeah. And if you are ready to, to trust people and let them run with it, the amount of people who have come up to say, well, can we launch it in this country mm. or that one, so it's, it's much less effort than, than it's, it's the energy that you need to. Well, you've obviously inspired. And, and we all have a lot of energy, so we need to use it. <laughs> you've obviously inspired a lot of people uh, in, in the process of doing so. And is there um, any sense, any, I was going to say first wives club, it's not really what I mean, but sort of the first ladies club almost. Um, of uh, Obviously, Nick was Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Samantha Cameron, a businesswoman as well, uh, amongst other labels. Who else have we got? Uh, Sheree Booth, obviously uh, well known. Is there a little club of you? Do you get together to, uh, to swap Well, we notes? have to be the first wives and husband because now we have a first husband. So. <laughs> That's true. Um, but but do, do you, do, are you still in correspondence with any people? Uh, or I never understand why people are so, so curious 
about I, that. No, I it think, seems to be like the uh, the little gossip uh, on the side. No? I, not not so much. Um, I, I was actually thinking more about um, what influence uh, there may or may not be. Um, I can assure you that I don't have any influence on the current government, and otherwise they would not be doing the things they are doing. Uh, and hopefully we wouldn't have been where we were either. Um, <laughs> um, and, and you... Uh, you you might well be the only uh, lawyer, certainly the one that I know, with a cookbook on the shelves. <laughs> and I'm very disappointed to see that. Um, I, I know when you went to see BBC Breakfast, you took a cake in, and uh, we've got nothing today. <laughs> very disappointing. Uh, but how how did that? Because that was related to inspiring women in some ways. It was because um, I had launched while Nick was my husband was in government. Uh, I had done a cooking blog with my kids. I have three sons and it's like, look, you have to learn how to cook. And, and in order to uh, to get them there, I said, look, and we will do a blog and whatever we, we cook, we can put it here. And it became a, a nice thing to do with them because we couldn't tell anybody. Mm. We couldn't even tell Nick's advisors or they would have closed it oh, completely really? <laughs> that I was there writing personal things in politics. <laughs> you, you are not meant to do that. Um, so it was only Nick and us who knew about it. And we had whatever, 100 different recipes yeah. or so on. And then I said it at one of the last uh, elections. And somebody came to me afterwards uh, saying, why don't we try to do a book? And it was at that time that um, I was trying to internationalize yeah. inspiring women into inspiring girls. And we needed the uh, financial support mm. to be able to do the first countries. And I thought, well, what an easy thing to do. We have all the <laughs> recipes here. I just write a little bit in the margins and hey presto you get a, a book and I actually um, when I started writing I, I really enjoyed it because it became like a fun thing to do mm. adding a few stories here and there and things about Spain so that is how the book came about but I have to say that people keep asking me um, you know so you you have a cookbook and you like cooking or whatever I always say you know if I were a man and I mm. like rugby or cricket mm. and I was a lawyer nobody would ever ask me about that so I don't know yeah. why people find it so curious that I like cooking no we all have to eat uh, we, we do we do uh, in fact I'm going to pick up on a few tips later perhaps because I, I I love food as well but I'm I can't eat tomatoes so Spanish cooking is usually no good to me, but you can give me some tips later, perhaps, on uh, some tomato-free. You can tomato buy the book. I help inspiring Well, I also want to know if there's... Um, uh, we talked briefly before we started. Um, uh, Nick was obviously Sheffield MP, and Henderson's yeah. relish is a delicacy. I know, I know. I have a recipe in the blog. Is there really? Well, I'm going to go back and find that. Uh, that. That's something for us all to go and follow up on. And, and is that, like, the, the, the blog Fantastic happened. brand. The blogs have, it is a fantastic brand. Um, you can maybe work on some trade for them as well, because I think it's difficult. <laughs> we can't get into London, so there's no chance of getting it anywhere else. Um, there's there's uh, the book. Have you been approached by any TV shows? Because you, you've got a you, you're great character. I have, very I have, colourful. but I'm too embarrassed to tell you which ones. <laughs> oh, okay. But, but not, not, not cooking shows just yet. There's nine shells you need to worry as about. As well, too but much. no. Okay. I've, listen, there is only so much time. There is, there one is. One person has, and uh, I'm full on. <laughs> I, I can imagine. So, and, and so back, back to the job. Um, uh, do you expect to be... I am guessing you expect to be busier in the next few months, given uh, everything that's happening with Brexit, but also, as I talked about before, the, the various trade sanctions that are happening and being thrown around uh, uh, left, right and centre. Um, are you feeling that already? Is it something which you are prepared for? We are right now. What happens a lot on the trade practices mm. is that you really have to move with the tide. Mm. And uh, it is very important to know 
people from outside your own practice so that uh, you can react quickly to whatever may come up. And I do a lot of that, for example, on customs uh, areas. We have people that we work with that we can internalize or let them go in different shapes or forms, depending on, on what happens. Uh, we were ready for Brexit. Mm-hmm. We were ready for sanctions. We were not ready for both Brexit and sanctions coming at this level yeah. at the very same time. We were able to adapt much faster than than many others and with really mm-hmm. a specialized advice. See, I never ever employ anybody who is not mm-hmm. um, a top specialist in their area. We don't, you know, we don't do the kind of amateur um, triton in this kind of area mm-hmm. because it's, it's too complex. Generally speaking, uh, looking at the future, there is always something that is probably what 60 or so percent of our practice at any mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. which is the investigations. And we do sanctions investigations, it steps into customs investigations, Mm. it steps into anti-corruption bits and pieces, Mm. because obviously when there is um, sanctions, there is often some um, anti-corruption, anti-bribery issue. Um, Not so much the the reverse, (laughs) curiously. (laughs) Uh, But that is probably the biggest component of anything that we do at, at any time. Obviously now with the Iran... Uh, situation mm. in particular and, and with the question marks in relation to Russia, there is the compliance component mm. of sanctions that I imagine that is going to continue uh, being a big issue over the next uh, couple of years. And then on Brexit, I think that this will become more of an issue mm. when um, the negotiations really start um, and I am hoping that they, well I'm pretty yeah. sure that they will they will start this much more they the timing of that. We are one of the few that that are actually billing on Brexit. I think that there are mm. a lot of people who do seminars for free mm. or bits and pieces. Mm. We do proper advice of mm. writing the chapters of the negotiations and so on. And obviously, from the moment that that trade negotiation starts, we will start adapting what we have done for clients and also providing advice on the trade agreements with mm. third countries. And I think that there is very there are very few people here they're funnily enough more in the continent, but very few people here with the expert, the practical expertise on those negotiations to know how to triangulate them. Because it doesn't work just with the EU or with the US or with Argentina. Mm. Do you need to put it all together or it doesn't work? Mm. And particularly with so many people who, who are specialists in this being consumed at the moment within the civil service, presumably in, both in, in Europe, but also here as well. Um, do, do, do you see that there's going to be a, a, a whole host of uh, consultancies starting up um, uh, pretty soon from, from these people who've been working in the civil service through the Brexit negotiations perhaps, and then we get to an end Come date? Back and they suddenly start flooding the market. I have been quite critical about how the civil service has been uh, dealing with this at the very beginning because I thought that they were not really uh, focused, not the civil servants, but the government was not really focused on on putting together uh, the the right people deployed in the right ways Mm -hmm. to be able to deal with this. It took them a long time. They let the internal fights between the departments to, to take a few months. And now I think that they have lots of very clever people, but not necessarily people in every case who come with trade um, specialization mm. in trade negotiations, which is quite different from 
trade promotion or whatever it is, you know, the, the difference between a trade promotions person mm. and a trade negotiator is the difference between the engineer who makes the bike mm. and the person who sells to you the bike in the highest street. Yeah. And I think that they have some of those people, but they haven't, curiously to me, they haven't given job offers to some of the trade UK trade specialists who were working in Brussels, mm. who were working in Geneva, who are still somewhere there in the commission, mostly in mm. the limbo. And if I were the prime minister, the very first thing that I would do <laughs> in 24 hours is to make an offer to these people because mm. their, their talents mm. and their knowledge is mm. invaluable for the UK. Mm. Well, uh, talking to the prime minister, I think you spoke to her uh, as part of your inspiring women uh, campaign or around that issue. Um, did you get a sense of satisfaction from her? That are, you, are you confident in, in what she'll be able to achieve? Well, I spoke to her before she was uh, Prime Minister. Okay. I did an interview of her for the BBC for the Today programme. Um, and that was the year before, that was the Christmas before uh, she right. became Prime Minister, I seem to, um, to remember. So mm. I haven't really had a personal discussion with her uh, mm. afterwards, but I think that the whole country has a view as to whether she's able to handle this or not. Mm. Well, <laughs> look, I, I know we're, we're busy, but um, I'm going to say thank you very much. Uh, it's been a like pleasure. And, uh, and please carry on doing what you're doing and uh, inspiring these girls all around the world, because um, who knows, they may be following in your footsteps very soon. I'm sure they will do much better than me. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> the Hearing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please like us or just follow and subscribe. We also want your feedback, so rate and review us, or get in touch using the hashtag TheHearingPodcast. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.